0: Participate, engage, speak out, use your voice to be an effective advocate. The Voices in Advocacy podcast examines the diverse landscape of advocacy, exploring the ins and outs of building influence, driving change, and creating champion advocates. It's now time for the Voices in Advocacy podcast with your host, Roger Rickard.
1: Good day, all. I hope you're enjoying season three of the Voices in Advocacy podcast. I'm Roger Rickard, president and founder of Voices in Advocacy, where we work with organizations to inspire, educate, engage, and activate your supporters by turning them into effective, influential advocates. And this is the podcast dedicated to the art of advocacy. This podcast is for the people that work and engage in advocacy efforts for their organizations, be they corporations, associations, trade organizations, and nonprofit cause groups. Now, let's get started. On today's show, we speak with Megan Cruz, the Director of Grassroots Advocacy at the National Retail Federation. In this role, Megan is responsible for developing and implementing effective grassroots campaign strategies and tactics in accordance with state and federal action plans. She has more than a decade, I can't believe that, has more than a decade of Capitol Hill grassroots and trade association experience prior to her tenure at the National Retail Federation. Megan worked at the National Propane Gas Association. Now, she also served as a scheduler for an Ohio congressman, and we're going we're gonna to get into that a little bit later on. But ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to welcome Megan to today's show. How are you, Megan?
0: Great. Thanks for having me, Roger. I really appreciate it. And I'm so jealous of your amazing radio voice. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, that started a long time ago in college. And so, uh, uh, yes, but thank you. Thank you very much for the compliment. Now we're going to turn the tide because I want to share that we have an award winner on today's show.
0: Oh, yes. Yes.
1: A couple of weeks ago, Megan accepted the 2021. Reed Award given by Campaigns and Elections for the Grassroots Trade Association of the Year for her work at the National Retail Federation, better known as NRF. Congratulations, Megan. Yes,
0: thank you, Roger. It was um, definitely a team effort on behalf of the entire NRF team. Um, Obviously, it was was in recognition of our work in 2020 to help keep retail open and um, able to serve Customers and communities across the country during the pandemic. So,
1: um, yeah,
0: it was, it was a tremendous honor to be recognized for our work from from last year.
1: Well, that was a that was a heavy lift keeping retail open last yeah, year. Indeed. <laughs> so, so I can uh, I can fully respect that. And again, congratulations for that. So, my wife has a habit of calling me a poli sci geek uh, <laughs> for my love of political science and pretty much all things political. Uh, what made you select political science as your major at the University of Dayton?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I had, when I was in high school, I um, I had, you know, we were talking about what career path I was going to choose. I had always thought I was going to become a teacher just because that seemed to be the, um, one of the main careers I had been exposed to. Um, and then when I was in high school and got accepted into college, I was thinking about the route I wanted to take, and I quickly realized that I didn't want to be teaching the same thing year after year as a teacher in my elementary school, my hometown community, and I was looking at the classes in high school that I enjoyed the most, and my um, AP government um, class was my favorite, and I um, graduated from high school in 2005, and um My senior year of high school was the 2004 election and being um, from Ohio, all of the major candidates come in and out of Ohio. You're just inundated with information about political campaigns. And I just got hit by the bug and, and I would go to as many rallies as I could. And I volunteered with local campaigns um, in high school. And I just really thought it was a career path for me. So that's how I got started um, in in poli-sci.
1: You know, uh, pe- people can't see me smiling because as you were talking about the AP class, I immediately reverted back to when I started at, uh, at Penn State uh, in the uh, uh, university. And uh, when I was in my first political science class, a guy by the professor by the name of Lou Leopold. And he and I were on diametrically opposite political spectrum. Uh, but he had taught me uh, what I think is the greatest lesson that we probably need to get back to is that we can agree to disagree without being disagreeable.
0: A hundred percent. Yep.
1: And, you know, <laughs> yes. so it's, it, it is funny. It's funny how you revert back to those things uh, like you did talking about your AP class and getting involved and getting engaged and, and participating. So congratulations for doing that. Uh, I think it's really important that we uh, we participate right. in our process. Yeah,
0: absolutely. You know? Yeah, I mean, I've knocked on more doors than I and called more random people on the phone in those early days than I can count. So um, I definitely cut my teeth in the campaign world.
1: <laughs> but that's really smart because that's where you really uh, where the rubber meets the road, if you will. Uh, Uh, about the importance of being in front of people and creating that influence and engagement and so on and so forth. And speaking of influence, so a generic question here, is political influence important?
0: Oh, definitely. Um, I think um, it provides a tool for, for everyone to make their, their voice heard. I mean, um, I think the, the um, idea of political influence has gotten a um, negative connotation over the years, but it really is the, the foundation of our democracy. Um, people, Our democracy is founded on people weighing in with their government. And so um, it's important that that, that is preserved in, in, a, of course, ethical and um, uh, regulated manner to keep everyone honest in, in doing what they're supposed to do. But yes, I think it's, it's very important to to have the tools in place to um, allow citizens to make their voice
1: heard. So we have the alphabet soup of generations, you know, X, Y, Z and all that. Do you think that that young people today are more engaged or less engaged than they have been in the past?
0: Um, I would say more engaged. Um, I, I think that social media has a lot to do with that. Whether or not that that turn, translates necessarily into voters at the polls, that's not a question that I'm necessarily equipped to answer. But I think right. that it's, I see, um, I, I identify as a millennial, but a, a, I always call myself a geriatric millennial. I'm, I'm not on TikTok or anything like that. Um, but I think it's, I see so many of my um, millennial generation engaging and share, weighing in um, on the issues that are important to them. Um, you know, via social media, and there's so many tools out there now that make it easy for, for folks to weigh in. I mean, at the National Retail Federation, we have um, tools that f- to provide our members so they can easily contact Congress on all the issues impacting our industry um, from their from their cell phones. We make try to make it as easy as possible, um, and I think it's it's been really um, important for um, to make it easy on folks to, to make their voice heard. So social media and these, these great tools have really increased engagement, I think.
1: You know, I, I, I like to ask that question because I have found in my experience of running around the country speaking and helping organizations grow their communities, of advocates, that it is that younger group. And I would, you know, I don't run into 18 year olds that often, I have with different things, but primarily those just out of college to maybe thirty years old that are that are sitting in that bracket there that really want to be engaged and they want to be engaged because they want to make an actual difference.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Uh, and not just say and play the lip service that you know. I sometimes think as we get older and jaded, we we kind of pay that lip service. What do you think?
0: Um, you know, I always try to. Um... To remain optimistic that the process works, um, so I'm, I'm still in an optimistic place that um, if if we you know, do the right thing for the the right reasons, that are um, won't we'll be able to affect change. So,
1: good. I'm glad to hear that. Yes. Uh, and, and and by the way, I wouldn't do what I did if I if I'm not optimistic. But yeah. I but I do see uh, sometimes some others. So you what re- you represent the national retail. Uh, Federation very well. Tell us what, what is the mission of the Federation?
0: Sure. Yeah. The, the National Retail Federation, we're the world's largest retail um, trade association, and we've represented the retail industry for over a hundred years. And we like to say that we passionately stand up for the people policies um, and ideas that help retail thrive. So we, you um, we're a trade association. We have um, around 100 employees and we're based in Washington D.C., and so we have, um, of course, our advocacy, um, government relations component is um, one of our, our key pillars. We have communications department, um, marketing, um, conferences, and, and a, a huge um, a huge staff that are passionate about serving retailers and and um, and their workers.
1: So with that, you fell right into where I was going because according to my research, there are 18 NRF staff members in the government affairs shop. Now yeah. that's, <laughs> that's larger than most trade associations and their, uh, GA, uh, shops.
0: Yeah, that sounds uh, about right.
1: <laughs> yeah. So specifically your role is director grassroots. So tell us about your role specifically.
0: Sure. So, um, the retail industry we're the largest private sector employer in the U.S. So pretty much every single issue under the sun impacts retail in some way. So the way our um, our department is organized, we have um, a senior vice president of government relations, David French. Um, we have a um, our general counsel, um, Stephanie Martz, who is um, also a policy expert, and in, in those two are the um, the leaders of our our gr um, apparatus. And then under that, we have subject matter experts that lobby on behalf of the different issues impacting retail. Right. And then where I come into play is I work very closely with our lobbying team on whatever emerging issues are, um, you know, becoming, becoming in prominence at the moment to come up with grassroots strategies, um, in, and, and member engagement strategies to get our, our members to, um, to activate. So, um, that's, that's kind of my day-to-day is just, I talk constantly with our lobbyists. They let me know um, what to expect, what's coming out of the hill. Um, I get get a pulse on um, what, what are the strategies that we could use to most effectively push for whatever legislation or regulatory activity that we're trying to accomplish. Um, and I develop relationships with our member companies and also um, small businesses across the country to help be um, grassroots activists and also grass tops activists um, as well for us.
1: So the key for you though, is translating all that knowledge into the activation.
0: Exactly, yeah, we have a lot of, a lot of subject matter experts who are lawyers and I'm not a lawyer by trade. So I try to take, um, well, you know, these are very large, complex, nuanced issues and I try to drill them down. In an effective way to um, communicate them to our advocates and mobilize them.
1: Yeah, and and to simplify them in a way that it makes them easy to relate to what the problem is. Correct.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, make them relatable, make it easy to understand. Um, you know, we we try to to not keep things too complicated. We we don't want to tell our advocates every little. M- action that's taken place on a specific legislation we tell them the the quick overview how it impacts you and here's what you
1: can do to help so with that uh, telling them how it impacts them and everything else is personal storytelling important in uh, your 100%. Grassroots advocacy messaging
0: yes 100 we um i think we, we like to say at the national retail federation that we are the um greatest storytellers of retail story. And so that's really the central of everything that I do in my role. Um, I frequently, whatever issue is uh, hot at the moment, I will go out to our members and ask them to share their story with me and create story banks um, and have those on deck to either share with members of the press, um, get those stories out on social media, ask Um, our advocates to record personal testimonials that we can put out on social media Um, and sharing those stories is really critical to our advocacy.
1: So sharing those stories, uh, then, uh, you know, I'm sure that you work with your communications team then in house, do those stories then end up sometimes uh, in the media and particularly maybe in, in national media to be able to help, Tell that story so that instead of it being a direct impact with a member of Congress, they're hearing it from from the media side of what's happening. Is that correct? Is that- oh
0: yes, yeah, absolutely. That's um, that happens all the time. You know, with NRF being such a um, well-respected trade association for such a large industry, we get media requests constantly um, asking for. Um, to hear from from retailers and so that's a big part of my job is connecting the press with the right um, advocates to share um, what's going on on the ground for them and and that's um, we, we've gotten folks on all you know all the the major outlets and publications to share a retail story and um, and then in turn of course share that with Capitol Hill um, to let them know that you know their constituent is is weighing in on this and Um, I always try to um, connect our our greatest storytellers from if if someone takes action on a grassroots alert and they personalize the message, I read through all of those and I'll highlight ones that I think are the most compelling. And I'll then, even if I don't know the person, reach out to them and ask them if they'd be willing to take another step to get their voice out there and um, share that message directly with a Legislative director or chief of staff in their congressman's office if it's a, a important issue at the time, um, and from there I've I've had um, you know it's basically cold calling retailers, um, but I've had some really great success um, translating them from folks that just found our action alerts or organic leases, um somehow into some of our greatest champions.
1: So so that's one of the way you you're recruiting <laughs> the cold calling, yes. the recruiting <laughs> <Yes>. glasses, <laughs> How else do you recruit them?
0: Yeah, so we we have um, great relationships with our state retail association partners. Um, You know, NRF. We have we represent you know some of the largest brands, um, you know, Walmart, Target, Amazon, et cetera. Um, But you know, we we find that small businesses are such great voices on behalf of our industry as well. And so, um, but our small businesses tend to become members of their local state trade um, retail association. So I have great relationships with the leaders of of the retail associations at the state level and we'll often work closely with them to help identify new new advocates for issues that we're working on. Um, We also have had this really amazing partnership with one of our member companies, the Curate Retail Group, which is the parent company of QVC, HSN, and Zulily. And we created this program during the pandemic called the Small Business Spotlight. And it was an opportunity to share the stories of small businesses who were impacted by the pandemic. Um, And so from there, we've recruited small businesses and they get an amazing opportunity if they're selected. They get to share their story live on QVC and HSN. They get mentoring from Exec, or from experts at QVC um, and HSN. And it's in, from there, since it's a, it's a partnership between NRF Foundation and um, the Curate Retail Group, we then help them continue um, the impact of their involvement in that program by meeting with their members of Congress and getting involved in, in advocacy. And so that program has been really great to identify new voices um, because they get this amazing opportunity to share their brand story with one of our member companies in a national outlet but then in turn they can uh, you know continue their relationship with the nrf by meeting with their lawmakers we've had uh, one of our small businesses that we met through that program actually testified um, at the house financial services committee last year um, on an issue um, related to pandemic um, risk insurance issues so we've been really able to cultivate advocates by providing them meaningful opportunities to share their stories, both with the help of our member companies and the opportunities that NRF provides.
1: So do you have any training programs that you have in place for these volunteers to make them even more effective and more influential in their role as, as the NRF advocates?
0: Yes. So, um, On pre-pandemic years, we we ran a um, advocacy boot camp program um, where we would select around 25 of our best and brightest advocates and we would fly them to Washington for a day of learning and then a day of Hill lobbying with their elected officials. And so that program, we've kind of put it on a little bit of a hold because of the pandemic, um, but that is something that we're hoping to reprise um, in the future. And then we also have a program called the Retail Advocate Summit, which is our large um, um, fly-in event that we have every two years on election years. And that is a great opportunity to get our advocates all together in a room to um, to kind of get prime the pump on how, how to speak to Congress. Um, But I, uh, you know, I work very closely with our advocates if they are going to be having a one-on-one meeting with a member of Congress or a staff person on how to talk to Congress. Um, And uh, it's definitely important to make sure that they are (laughs) well-prepared.
1: Oh, absolutely. So you were a scheduler for a member of Congress. And so you teaching people how to go through that process, I I would like to learn from your experiences. Uh, And of course, you know, I've had experiences for years and years. But what do you think the best practices are for getting meetings with, you know, either the member? And and I don't want to downplay other staff at all because they're probably even more important in many ways. Uh, But what are some of those best practices?
0: Sure. I think um, having a clear and concise Scheduling request when you send it in. I, I when I was a scheduler, you know, you're getting inundated with requests. Having a, I think a request that has more bullet points covering the key things that you're, you're hoping to accomplish with the meeting. You know, a brief description of who who the organization is. If, um, you know, if just a quick one line of the, about the association, and then a list of who are the expected participants, and also indicate if there are constituents in the meeting. And then also including um, quick bullets of what you'd like to talk about, and include links to any relevant legislation. Just making it super quick and easy. And oh, finally, and also including the windows um, that you're available to meet, and also um, indicating flexibility. So um, I think it's it's important to be transparent um, with schedulers that you know everybody wants to meet with the boss. Um, but the, yeah, the boss has very limited time. So making sure that your request, if you don't have constituents in the meeting, say that upfront because it can, be, it can be frustrating when people try to fly in under the radar and say that they have, <laughs> they have constituents in the meeting and then they show up and it's, it's just folks from the DC office. Um, we, we, we don't do that to, to folks when I make scheduling requests. We very transparent about who's going to be in the meeting and what the purpose is.
1: Yeah. And sometimes there are different connections. They may not necessarily be a constituent, but there is a direct tie as to why they should be there. And it's in the best interest of the member of Congress and the staff to have them, uh, you know, at at that particular time. Yeah, exactly. But you, but you great, you gave some absolutely great points. And I think one of the things that gets overlooked an awful lot, and tell me if I'm not mistaken here. Is signifying exactly the issue you want because sometimes you end up with getting a person in the room. That person has no clue about the issue. Right. You know, and and now it was really a waste of time for both parties, as opposed to having the right person in the room uh from staff. And and it might be the type of issue where the member hasn't even made up a final, hasn't made a final decision and may want to be in that meeting because right. of that is that does that happen a lot
0: yeah absolutely um you know i'm just thinking like, trying to be as specific as possible in the scheduling request is helpful like if you just say um i'm with x organization and i want to talk about tax that you can put the right legislative staffer but it could be we we need to know exactly. Um, you know, there's so many nuances to, to tax. What what do you mean by that? Is it corporate tax? Is it, um, you know, different levels of the, the tax code? So it, it helps to be as specific as possible just to right. get the right quality of meaning.
1: And you did point out if there's specific legislation, at least point that legislation out because someone may have already been uh, assigned to that piece of legislation. Correct.
0: Right. Yeah. Exactly.
1: So. Yeah. Absolutely. So let's let's. Uh, that was great. That was fascinating, and I love to talk to schedulers because, in my opinion, that's the most important person in the world.
0: It's a yeah. It's definitely. Um, I'm I'm grateful for the experience that I had because I, I think it, it was a fast paced role. You're dealing with a lot of different people and a lot of different demands, um, both internal in your office and externally. And I think it it prepared me well for um, the direction I've gone with my career.
1: i think that's great Uh, that that is excellent excellent experience Uh, what technology tools you mentioned it a little bit earlier that some of the you know be able to use their phones so what technology tools do you use to keep them engaged uh, when an issue is you know when their action has to be taken on a particular issue
0: yeah we are um customers of fiscal notes voter voice platform so that's what we use for ours um, and so we we use the their text messaging feature. Uh, we were able to gain a lot of new advocates through our COVID nineteen advocacy efforts. So we have a list of thousands of active phone numbers that we are able to text our advocates. That's that's my favorite way to engage because it's um, I usually find it's the uh, most successful response rate. Um, we also do um, email campaigns uh, through the um, Marketo platform, It's I believe it's Adobe Marketo, but that's um, a system that's used throughout the NRF for both advocacy and non-advocacy activities. And um, we just switched to that this year and I'm really enjoying the functionality of the uh, Marketo platform for
1: emails. So do you think, uh, now we're gonna get philosophical here for a second. Do you think advocacy technology is taking over personal grassroots engagement? or the opposite?
0: I don't believe so. I I honestly um, focus most of my attention on cultivating those um, really meaningful relationships that our advocates can form with their members of Congress. I think that it's important to get those grassroots messages, um, you know, form messages up to the Hill. Um, But I think it goes 10 times further if we can get a really meaningful contact to weigh in either directly with a member of Congress or a member of the key staff on an issue. Um, I think it's, it's all important to do together. Um, But I find that the personal relationships is far more meaningful um,
1: for our So so when you're creating those personal relationships uh, that you're creating with your, with your advocates and that, does that help you put them in a place where they, may become more of a grass tops for you because you know the quality of what they can deliver?
0: Oh, yes. hundred percent. Yeah, that's, that's really the goal is I, um, I try to think of our advocates on different tiers. You know, we have not every person is going to want to call their member of Congress directly and cultivate that relationship. And that's totally fine. And we're happy to have them in our network to send a message that is so impactful as well. Um, but for those that I, I see engage with us, personalize a message, um, share a really compelling story through our our um, voter voice platform. Those are the ones that, um, as I mentioned earlier, I like to pull out and just see if there's any kind of elevated engagement that I can help them with. Because, you know, I believe if, if you take the time to share your story in a message, um, to your congressman through our, just the general platform, you, you might be willing to do a little bit more. And so I, I tried to not overwhelm them with like, the first thing I asked them to do is call their chief of staff, <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll just provide info, a little more information on how they can get involved. Um, and and so the, those things, you know, it takes a, a long standing relationship with the advocate to um, get them to understand what we're what we're working towards. Um, but it's, it's really, to me, that's that's the most important is cultivating those relationships.
1: I kind of relate to it as a marriage. You don't start off by saying to somebody right away, "Will you marry me?" Uh, you know, you ask them to participate. You take them out. Mm-hmm. You get an ice right. cream together. You, work, I mean, you work and develop, and you find out how this works for both parties, and and if both parties really like being a part of this. And how to on.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah, I so, like that analogy. I'll have to use that in the future. That we're like dating art advocates. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, but I, think that, I think there's a lot of reality to that. Yeah. Like, you know, it, you, you must nurture. Yes, and, exactly. And they, in turn, must nurture the relationship that they're going to have with elected officials and their staff, mm-hmm. because you know they don't, uh, you know they don't want to be kissed on the first date either. Uh, right. You know, they 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 want a long standing relationship and it's it's always gratifying when you hear from organizations that say when they call into the scheduler or, or or email the scheduler for the appointment the scheduler knows who they are they've been there before they've done that they're good at what they do they show up when they're going to show up they leave when they're supposed to leave you know I mean all, all, all those type of things so with that and all the changes that have taken place in the last year and a half both pandemic as well as the action that has taken place on Capitol Hill. Uh, What do you think legislative fly-ins will look like in the future?
0: Yeah, I think it's going to be a very long time before we get back to groups, massive groups flying in um, from all across the country, taking to the Hill um, in in mass groups. I think... um, it's we've at the National Retail Federation have definitely been rethinking how we advocate and we've pivoted to a, a virtual platform for our um, f- uh, fly-in events. We, um, we actually pivoted our largest fly-in event, the Retail Advocates Summit that I mentioned earlier into a program that we now call the Retail Advocates Town Hall Series. And what we try to do um, uh, at least quarterly, we'd we have these town halls and we like to get together. Um, groups of lawmakers with something in common. So, um, so far this year, we've done one with members of the small business committee in May during small business month. In June, we did a um, virtual town hall with members of the Congressional Black Caucus. Um, And just last week, we did one um, during Hispanic Heritage Month with members of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. And coming up on October 20th, which I'm very excited about, we're doing one that we're calling from retail to representative, and we're sitting down with members of Congress who have a background in the retail industry to share how they pivoted their retail background into um, public service. So, those have been really impactful because the members of Congress love coming on to connect with their, um, you know, with our industry. I've also found um, good success in on the Zoom platform we set up. Virtual constituent breakout rooms. So they'll come address our large group um, on the town hall, and then if they have constituents on the line, they'll just stay on for an extra five or ten minutes, and we'll move them over into a constituent breakout room, and they can talk to their constituents virtually. Um, so I think the virtual, um, the virtual fly-ins are here to stay for, for a while, maybe forever. Um, but I I find great value in them because we can also put them together very quickly and without significant cost burdens, um, to the organization because, um, you know, everyone who plans fly-ins know they're, they're not cheap. and They require an extensive amount of work. Um, and so to be able to connect virtually with Congress quickly has been, um, really great, I believe, for advocacy in general.
1: And it, and it allows you to pivot and react quickly uh, when when things are happening rather than just that once a year or or, right. or however, however right. that happens. And I think, by the way, I want to make a comment. I think it's brilliant how you've segmented different areas when you're doing your town hall meetings uh, because, again, to your point, even when you're dealing with it as a scheduler, The more specific you can be, the the more you have a tendency to get uh, a better response and better reaction from that. Uh, Time is fine. Yes, it really is. (laughs) I wanna wanna ask you two quick questions. What's the biggest challenge in your job?
0: I think the biggest challenge is is keeping people, our advocates engaged um, without creating burnout um, I think it's everyone in this this industry, I think knows what I'm talking about. Is it's especially with COVID-19 and the the um, amount of issues that are impacting um our industry, we are constantly looking for advocates to speak up and make their voice heard. But you you have to be strategic with who you ask and how you ask and how often you ask. And and it's um, you're just constantly trying to find the the right voice for the right issue, um, and uh, and making keeping those relationships um, in a good place where you're not burning out your advocates by asking for too much too often. But it's hard on our end because, um, like I said, there every issue under the sun falls on a retail. So it's like. I, mean, I get requests all the time. Do you have anybody in this district? Do you have anyone in this district? Um, and it's just it can be difficult to yeah. to keep those relationships uh, and you know just cultivate the right people. So
1: well, and I but but I think by you know you started off by saying about cold calling and, and by you developing the actual relationship really helps prob- probably uh, take you over that hump a little bit easier than it was some other people that never cultivate. Right. And don't even really know who their advocates are. uh, Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
0: And we've been setting up webinars on some key issues um, that I've worked with our lobbying staff. And, like, if if this, especially in the beginning of the year, what's going to be our top priorities? And we've set up educational webinars throughout the year to prime the pump on, you know, with our members that this is the expected timeline on an issue. This is what you can do to help. Please keep, you know, you're going to be hearing from us throughout the year on this issue. So it's not like, boom, there's a issue on the floor. It's for a vote today. We need to unleash the the retail army to the hill. It's a kind of a slow drip of information to keep people part of the
1: process throughout. Final real question. Okay. What first comes to mind when I say the word advocacy?
0: The first thing that I thought of was empowerment. I think that advocacy is such a great way to empower, um, others to make their voice heard. And, um, when used properly, I think can create a really amazing relationship with the advocates and also folks in, in my position to, um, you know, really feel like you're empowering people for the greater good.
1: You know, Megan, you gave us some great, great information today. And, uh, I can see why you're in a role in a big shop uh, with an important trade organization. You do a great job. Uh, you've made the time fly to the point where I looked up and went, really? Is that where <laughs> we're at with this? Uh, any final thoughts, anything you'd like to add?
0: Um, I encourage everyone to um, follow the National Retail Federation on our social media accounts, um, especially Instagram is where uh, we've been sharing a lot of the great advocacy stories that um, I referenced in um, in this Podcast today, so um, I would uh, definitely encourage everyone to, to check us out.
1: Well, I'm going to add uh, the National Retail Federation to my Instagram account. I want to I want to follow what's going on. You know that is a wrap of today's incredible, <laughs> uh, warm, wonderful conversation that we had with Megan Cruz, Director of Grassroots at the National Retail Federation. Thank you, Megan, for being on the show today, and I wish you. All the best.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Let's face it. Today's advocacy arena is just plain noisy. Organizations are stretched. You need every advantage to make sure your issue gets the attention it deserves and your voice heard. The RAP Index is the best way to do just that by finding your stakeholders' relationships and engagement power. Get past the noise. Know who your people know. Go to rapindex.com, that's R-A-P-Index.com, and tell them Roger sent you for a special offer. If you like today's podcast, head over to where you find your podcasts, and subscribe to the Voices in Advocacy podcast. A big thank you to today's guest. I appreciate your time and the unwavering passion for advocacy you have. Well, that's it for this episode of Voices in Advocacy. Remember, you have the power to be an effective, influential advocate. Now go out and make it a better world.
0: We hope you enjoyed today's Voices in Advocacy podcast and look forward to joining us again next week. To learn more about Voices in Advocacy, go to our website,
1: VoicesinAdvocacy.com.